Well, as you know, today is January 1st, 2023, and for many of us, that's just another day, right? Marked with a celebration, and maybe if you still use analog calendars, you've replaced your calendar with the new one. Um, For many of us, it's just a frustrating two to three weeks of learning how to not write 2022 anymore when we write things. And and for others, January 1st marks the beginning of some new resolutions. And maybe maybe you've got some new spiritual practices you're going to try out. Or maybe you want to remove some distractions or bad habits in your life, kind of simplify. I know that's a a popular one that I always try and do. Uh, Maybe you've got goals for exercise or intellectual pursuits or being more intentional with relationships. There's all kinds of great ways to kind of like say this is a new season. How am I going to use this time? How am I going to invest it? But the one potential pitfall of, well, of many potential pitfalls, but the one I wanted to talk about is that most of our New Year's resolutions depend on our own willpower and our own initiative. I mean, do not get me wrong. Human beings are amazing creatures. After all, we are made in God's image, so that shouldn't surprise us. I mean, humans have done amazing feats in athletics and the sciences and social engineering and generosity, but for all of those standout examples of exceptionalism, there's like kind of the rest of the 99%. I'm sure none of you are that normal, but I'll just speak for myself. Like human willpower only takes me so far. And my own initiative only takes me so far, even with the best intentions. Now, the turning of a new year might just be another trip around the sun, but human beings throughout history have always sort of marked time. They've done it in different ways. Maybe it's the solar calendar, the lunar calendar, the agricultural seasons of uh, of sowing and harvesting or whatever it is. But these transitions provide opportunity to think differently and to make changes, to reflect on the trajectory of our lives, our lives with Jesus, and our lives in relationship to the world. New Year's may offer us lots of good opportunities to reset and refocus and to make fresh starts, but an opportunity, I'm just saying, an opportunity is not the same thing as good news. Somewhere around 1,100 years ago, give or take, followers of Jesus began counting time different from the solar calendar. Rather than beginning the year with the first of January, they started with the season of preparation and anticipation focused on the birth of Jesus, God in the flesh. The season, of course, is called Advent, and it begins four Sundays before the Christmas celebration each year. And rather than starting with an arbitrary date marking the solar or lunar calendars, Advent prepares us to celebrate the intentional act of God that changed the world forever, the arrival of Jesus. And and rather than merely a good opportunity to kind of shape up our lives, the season of Advent is rooted in the good news that Jesus has actually come. And that the Holy Spirit is actually among us and that Jesus actually will come again to make all things new. And you might recall our Advent series that has led us up to this point. Um, It's been rooted in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. And that first week we looked at uh, Mark 1, 1 through 3, and we focused on the promises of God. 
the promises in the, in the prophets of God coming in person to rescue us and, 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 and to, to be among us. And Jesus is presented as the fulfillment of that promise. In Mark 1, 4 through 5, we're focused on preparation. And in that passage, we see John the baptizer calling people out to the desert to be baptized and repent of their sin to prepare for the coming of God himself. In Mark 1, 6 through 11, we focused on the primacy of Jesus, like he is the point of all the things that the prophets were saying and all of our hopes and longings. Jesus is presented as the one. And then Mark 1, 12 and 13 reveals Jesus as the prototype of humanity, a picture, a snapshot of what restored humanity can look like. Humans who don't succumb to the temptations of the world, who live in harmony with creation, and who live in proper, healthy interdependence from God. And today, we get to focus on the final part of this text, the proclamation, the big reveal, the announcement of Jesus. Mark, unlike Matthew and Luke, skips all the manger scenes in Jesus' childhood, and instead the first words we hear from Jesus' mouth are, well, let Mark just tell his own story. Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, and he was proclaiming the gospel of God, and he was saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand, has come near, is arriving So repent and trust in this good news. Now, there's two backgrounds to this word good news. It's the Greek word, euangelion, and I covered it pretty extensively in that first sermon in the Advent series, but it's so important, I'm just gonna overview it again. There's two backgrounds to this word, good news, euangelion. And the first is from the Hebrew Hebrew scriptures. In Isaiah 40, for example, God tells the prophet to comfort the people of Israel with the euangelion, with the good news that he's going to come and dwell with them and deliver them, that he's going to become king of the world. And this is what's known as the day of the Lord, or the time, or the age. And so when Jesus is saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near, that's the good news, that God is coming. And in this case, the good news is the fulfillment of the shared story and hope of that future. The prophets told of a day when God would come and Jesus declared that that day had arrived in his person and his ministry. Jesus proclaims the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God has come near, it's at hand. He's speaking of the new age or the day of God's promises coming to pass. The time is fulfilled. The time is fulfilled. Did you know in Greek that there's at least two different ways to say the word time? The most common way is to say the word chronos. Chronos, from which in our English, of course, that makes sense, right? Chronology, chronological. Some people in the old school call watches chronographs or clocks chronographs, right? So chronology, it's the the seconds and the minutes and the days and the weeks and the hours. It's, It's just the regular time. That's chronos. But the second Greek word for time is kairos. And that has a different sense to it. Kairos has more to do with quality or essence or meaning 
It's like last, last night, many of you probably um, counted down to the new year, even if maybe it was New York's new year, whatever, however late you stayed up, I don't know, no judgment. Um, but you're counting down in Kronos time, five, four, three, two, one, but there was also a bit of a Kairos moment too because you weren't just counting down seconds to a ball dropping or to fireworks, but you're counting down to this transition to a new year. And oftentimes with the new year comes new hopes, clean slate, the feeling of a transitional moment or a threshold moment. That's a bit of the difference between those two words. One is just the seconds and minutes and hours. One has a meaning of quality. In the Bible, a kairos moment is a time when God's realm rushes into our realm. It's, it's when more than a change in time occurs, it's a change of reality that occurs. And the word used here in Mark 1, 14 and 15 is that the kairos is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. The time of God's awaited promise has been fulfilled. No longer are we just waiting in Kronos time. This is a Kairos moment, Jesus is saying. He's here. So that's one aspect of this word euangelion or good news. But there's a second meaning that's really important as well in Jesus' context. And that is that it was a, a technical term that the Roman Empire would use. Whenever a new emperor was born or rose to power, Runners were dispatched. Do we have any kids in here that like to run? I, I see some hands. Yes, I'm not going to ask you to run right now, but do you like to yell? Can I have every kid on this side say, Have you heard the news? Louder. Silas, I know you can scream it. Have you heard the news? Kids over here. No. The kingdom of God is at hand. Yes, Declan. Kids over here, have you heard the news? The kingdom of God is at hand. All right, let's try it on this side. Kids over here, have you heard the news? The kingdom of God is at hand. Oh, you would be fantastic heralds, I think, in the first century. So these heralds would run out and they would say, have you heard the news, the euangelion, the king Caesar so-and-so has been born or has now just defeated your army and is your new boss? What does it mean then that the kingdom of God has come near, not the kingdom of Caesar Augustus or King Caesar Tiberius? Well, some New Testament scholars like Morna Hooker and William Platcher, among others, suggest that the kingdom might not be the best Greek translation in America. I mean, first of all, we just have problems with kingdoms, right? Like, that's kind of our whole shtick as Americans. We got away from the king, and, you know, we don't really like thinking in those terms. Um, the other problem with kingdoms is that we typically, or I do at least, think geography. Because kingdoms have boundaries, you know, like, that the king, well, now the king of England, right? But that's not the king of France because there's a boundary there, right? And we think of geographical boundaries. But, but what we're really talking about with the kingdom of God isn't like, well, God is king of this place, but not that place. It's more of his reign. And so a, a, a new movement in kind of translating this word for updated Western language is to talk about the reign of God rather than the, merely the, the, the kingdom of God. 
What does it look like when the reign of God breaks into the world? Well, it looks a lot like Jesus' life. Whenever Jesus walked and taught, wherever he went, there was the reign of God. And when he met people who were oppressed by demonic oppression, he cast out the demons with the authority of his word, the reign of God. And when Jesus faced injustice by corrupt leadership, he challenged it. The reign of God had come near. And when he came across those who were physically ill or deformed or blind or less than whole, he healed them because the kingdom and the reign of God had come near. And when he encountered those who were emotionally broken or those who were caught in cycles of sin and addiction, he confronted them in love and he forgave them and he gave them fresh starts in life. God's promise of salvation came crashing into the world in the person of Jesus, the reign of God had come near. And we need to be careful to hold these two meanings of euangelion, of good news, together in their original meaning. There's the promise of God coming to pass and there's the reign of God coming to displace kings and queens and men and women and all living things who resist that rule. See, in the ancient world in which Jesus is proclaiming this reign of God and Mark is telling the story to the, to the people he's trying to reach, this had a very particular meaning. It's not just announced as information. Did you guys know, like, the kingdom of God has come near, the reign of God is on hand? It's not a take it or leave it sort of announcement. It's news. It's, it's something that has happened, whether you believe it or not. It's not fake news. It's not advice. It's not a suggestion. It's not true for some, but not for others. It's count on it, new reality, news. That's how it's being presented in the gospel. When the heralds of Caesar's reign rode, down the, rode into town declaring the euangelion, they weren't asking, hey, do you believe it or not that Caesar's your king? It wouldn't really matter what you believed, actually, because you would find out. It simply was a fact. And what it meant when a new Caesar or a king or a ruler took over your town is that a lot of things started to change. And you either changed your life and your allegiance, which is repentance, or there were consequences. And Jesus was saying that the world as you know it is changing. The Kairos moment has occurred. The kingdom of God, the reign of God is breaking in. And Jesus came not with an opinion, but with a reality. He came not only with words, but with deeds. But not all accept the reign of God, right? Not all accept the reign of Jesus. In fact, let's just clear the air, none of us fully accept the reign of Jesus. You might be thinking, well, I do. Well, let's just wait a minute. Of course, there are, let's, let, let's start with low-hanging fruit, right? Like, there are some who plainly, like, deny the reign of Jesus, right? Uh, first of all, in this story alone, the very fact that when John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee. Like, John the Baptist, who's preparing the way for Jesus, was arrested for declaring the reign of God, Right? 
But modern examples are super easy pickings too, like let's just say communist states, right? Like clearly like it's not legal to talk about Jesus and the reign of God, right? Um, just flat out like paganism, like yeah, I don't really believe in that, I believe in something different, right? Or like actual true to the bone, not agnosticism, but just like true to the bone atheism, just like yeah, I don't buy it, right? So that's, that, those are clear modern day examples of, of resistance to the reign of God. But lest we look at everyone else and pat ourselves on the back as the faithful, let's just hold on a minute and look in the mirror because all of us resist God's reign over parts of our lives, don't we? There's the parts of our lives, sections of our hearts, our habits, our minds, where we don't really want God's reign to interfere too much, right? We've got our habits. We have our desires for self-promotion, our own addictions. The more reading I've been doing lately about addiction, the more I'm convinced that everyone's addicted to something. It's just the way that we cope with life as human beings. Attachments, attachments, attachments. The list is absolutely endless and we don't have to dig very deep and this isn't to make you all feel bad. But reality is a grace and we all rebel against the reign of God. And that's why part of the message that Jesus proclaimed is in the light of the arrival of the reign of God, repent and trust in the gospel. Put your faith in me, not me, but Jesus. Jesus, the embodiment of the good news. Jesus says repent and trust in the good news. Notice the positive nature of that command to repent. This is not Jesus ranting about these dirty, sinful human beings who you guys need to get right with God. You won't find that in the Bible. This is not God come down to berate people who are legitimately stuck in patterns of addiction and self-hatred and insecurity and the deep, deep cycles of dysfunction that invite sin and selfishness and rebellion. Jesus came because he's so compassionate that he knows that we're stuck. This is a gracious call. I have good news for you, says Jesus. Salvation is coming to you. Indeed, it has come, and this is the only, this is only the first installment Reality itself has been altered. Come, change your way of thinking. Change your way of feeling and living and adjust to this new reality that the reign of Jesus has come near. See, unlike modern New Year's resolutions that are fueled by our own initiative and our willpower, the good news of the inbreaking kingdom and reign of Jesus is that it's completely the initiative of God himself. Did any of you arrange that? Did you call him up and say like, hey, when you come and um, did, did you pull some strings? The world wasn't even looking for this. No one expected God to come in the flesh like that. This is all the initiative of God on our behalf. I said earlier that wherever Jesus went, there too was the reign of God 
But the one downfall of God becoming flesh as a human being is that he can't be everywhere at once. And in order to bring his kingdom in fullness, he had to defeat evil itself. He had to take away the enemy's greatest weapon, which is death. Because we all rebel against the reign of God and the cost of that rebellion is death, not because God is angry at us, but because life alone, like real life, is found in God. It's like if you were a plant and you cut yourself off from the sunshine, you would die. You don't even have to be a plant, just be a human and cut yourself off from food or water or oxygen. You would not fare well. God is kind of like that, the source of life, the source of eternal life. And when we cut ourselves off from God, we cut ourselves off from life. And Jesus came to do something about that. He gave himself in death for our sake. He went to the cross and took on the consequences of the sin of the world, of your sin and my sin, and then he rose from the grave three days later. Jesus rose, and he reigns at the right hand of the Father, and he has sent his Holy Spirit to all who trust in him and are baptized. And he dwells now in his church. And so you see, the reign of God is at hand. It's breaking in all around us. And this is the core of the gospel. It's the good news that the foundation of everything we are and everything we do as a church is rooted in this message. Many of you know that the Hebrew word for seed is zera. And when this church was in the process of being planted, we were praying as a small group of folks praying and dreaming about what God would do in and through this church community. And we prayed that God would give us a Zara verse of scripture, a seed that we could plant and rely upon, a scriptural anchor that we could plant and invest. We were looking for a true north so that we could become the community God wanted us to be, not just a community that we felt like being. A seed verse that would be the DNA or the blueprint for who we are and and why we do what we do. And we felt and still feel that God has given us Mark 1, 14 and 15 as our life verse, our Zara verse as a church. Like a small seed planted in this neighborhood, the reign of God has taken root in the lives of individuals. I look out and I see lives that have been transformed over the the grace of Christ and over the years of your commitment. I've seen and continue to see God transforming our lives together. And I enjoy the stories and seeing how the reign of Jesus has sprouted and is producing fruit in this community and congregation and through us to the community that we inhabit and the people that we work with and go to school with and play with. It's taking root in the way that we seek to bless our neighbors and love them as ourselves. And I believe that the root of the inbreaking reign of Jesus is about to bear new fruit among us, new shoots of life, new ways of being and seeing and living and serving and doing life together. Yeah, it's a new year. 
but the call isn't for you and I to dream up what we feel like doing and muster our strength and go for it. I think the call is to get on board with the reign of Jesus and to listen for how he is manifesting his reign in us and around us and Lord willing through us. Lord, thank you for this good news. And then I thank you that it is news, that it's presented as something that has happened and is happening. That it's happening and has happened despite how I feel about it or how much faith I have today versus how much faith I had yesterday versus how much faith I'll have tomorrow. Thank you that you proclaim its truth and its promise no matter what intellectual arguments I have for or against it, no matter how other Christians behave or don't behave, <laughs> Lord, I thank you for the reality of your inbreaking reign, and I want to be a part of it, and I want our church to be a part of it, and I pray, Lord, that you would release by your grace in the power of your spirit, release faith for today, Lord, for us to trust you and to have the courage to follow you. Amen.